HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network On Tour. I'm Sherry Bayer. Today we're broadcasting live from Charleston Wine and Food. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible and to Charleston Wine and Food Festival for having HRN down here for the fifth year in a row. I'm Sherry Bayer, and my show is All in the Industry, a show dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. This is actually my second time down here. I was here four years ago, and I'm super excited to be back and chat with my guest today, a local chef hero, Mike Lada, who I will introduce fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, as the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to cultivate relationships. And of course, I mean good ones. Yes, focus on people who share common values and principles and how we can help one another and work together. Connecting with the right people is key to success. I've heard an expression from my colleague Keith Durst that says, you can't make a bad deal with good people and a good deal with bad people. It's a simple notion with so much truth. So let's remember to invest in genuine relationships that will allow us to prosper. It's invaluable to our growth and our happiness. That's my tip today. Now, I'm so thrilled to be here at Charleston Wine and Food Festival with my guest, Mike Lada. He is the chef and partner of Fig Restaurant, a vibrant neighborhood bistro focusing on seasonally inspired cuisine, which he opened in Charleston in 2003. He is also the chef and partner of The Ordinary, a classic oyster bar and seafood hall in Charleston's Upper King District, which he opened in 2012. Among numerous accolades, The Ordinary was nominated by the James Beard Foundation as Best New Restaurant in 2013 and by GQ as one of the best restaurants of the same year. Mike was nominated in 2007, 2008, and 2008 for the James Beard Best Chef South. East Award, and he took it home in 2009, and there's more and more accolades, but let's chat. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, finally. Yes, I know, I know. I, 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 someone, you know, I know you from be, basically being on the road and seeing you at events, and last time I saw you in New York, you were up for the Today Show, I believe, and um, we've always talked about you coming on my show, so I'm super glad to be down here. I, know, I get to New York less and less every year, it seems. 
Yeah. Well, we 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 love having you. <laughs> well. But happy to be here today. Yeah, me too. So I always like to start out with my guests and find out how they got into their career and what led you to be a chef and also to find your home in Charleston. So we have, how long do we have? Half hour? Um, <laughs> Just kidding. Well, there's a um, few other shows later, but yeah, we have a half hour. Um, you know, it's really, it's really, I guess, kind of a quick story. Um, when I first entered the workforce at 14 years old, um, there was a hamburger stand in rural Western Massachusetts where all the all the cool kids worked, and it was real um, to get a job there. It was kind of a cool um, a cool opportunity, and so fortunately for me, my sister worked there and put a good word in for me. I got a job, and my first job in that restaurant um, was to take the orders at the drive up, and I kept looking back. You know, of course, it was a small little family-run business, but. You know, the pass to the kitchen was wide open, and I could see all those guys back there. And it seemed like the kitchen ran the restaurant, really. It was like nobody really wanted to interrupt them. They seemed to have their own, um, you know, kind of uh, camaraderie that was exclusive just to them. And it was a high-paced, intense environment. So after a while, I asked the owner, I said, hey, I I think I'd be better suited for the back of the house. And uh, he said, yeah, sure, why not? So he trained me on, you know, whatever... I mean, it was basically like clam rolls and cheeseburgers and uh, New England, uh, you know, hamburger stand fare. But literally, I remember the day that I stepped in the kitchen for the first time, put the apron on, and was shown how to, you know, um, read the tickets and produce whatever food was on my station. And I remember having this feeling of like belonging, like I had, like even though only at 14 years old, um, I felt like I had found something that really suited me. And never really, well, I did look away for a little while, um, but this is back in the, you know, now this is like the mid-80s. So, I didn't, you know, the, the food culture and restaurant culture wasn't a thing for our family, right? We didn't, um, there was no food network, et cetera. So being a chef wasn't part of my program. But however, it's how I made my living all the way up until college, or at least how I had money. And then when I went to college for actually broadcast journalism, I did that for about a year and, and a few weeks. That's why you seem very comfortable. <laughs> and uh, yeah, maybe. Um, and you know, I realized while at UMass Amherst, I saw Julia Child um, give a lecture. So I skipped my class in Intro to Logic because I hated it. And Julia Child captivated an audience, and she was probably in her 80s at this point, of 300 people standing room only in some hall at UMass Amherst. And her whole, um, I guess, the whole topic, or at least what I heard. Uh, from her lecture was her life through the lens of food and the pleasures of the table, uh, learning about um, cultures from other countries and other places uh, and exploring those and then what, what it's been like to be on television and meet and have peers like Craig Claiborne and James Beard. And like while I was listening to her, I really felt like she was speaking directly to me. And I said, well, why have I really been ignoring this? I really, I think I'm meant to be a chef. So I literally dropped out of school that day. Never went back. And um, went back to Boston, Mass. And just started floundering around looking for the right places to work. And, you know, that that little path led me from Boston to Martha's Vineyard, uh, which then led me to New Orleans because I had to find a place to work between seasons um, on the vineyard. And while in New Orleans, I fell in love with the South. However, New Orleans was a, a bit intense for me. So I landed in Atlanta um, right around the Olympics in 96, spent um, 
I was there in 94, I think. Spent four years there, and while there, worked for a great restaurant and really um, was the most informative part of my career. It was a French restaurant called Cibolette, and it was a really serious restaurant with really serious cooks and recipes. And I, w- I was so inspired by what was happening there. I used to be the first one to leave, first one to get there, last one to leave every day. I'd work for free, work with a pastry chef and the butcher, and just fell in love with the craft and fell in love with French technique. And that's all I needed. Um, I became the chef there a couple of years afterwards, which was pretty fun, uh, at a very young age, like 25. And then shortly thereafter, got recruited to Charleston by a guy named Glenn Roberts, who has Anson Mills. He was actually a director of operations at a restaurant group here in Charleston. And he wanted to find a young kid uh, who knew how to work with local product and integrate uh, produce seasonally onto a menu, which was kind of, it's kind of, it's a super challenging thing to do, honestly. And back then, there weren't that many people that could teach you how to do that. And I had fortunately learned how to do that on my own while I was in Atlanta uh, through a network of growers, um, which is probably the most important part of that story that I'll end up skipping over, but uh, became an an advocate for local farms and local, you know, and cooking local foods. And they plugged me into the restaurant here called Anson to implement a local food program. And so in 98, I got to Charleston and did that for three years and as kind of a part dumb, part cocky chef, I was like, you know, I should do this on my own. And fortunately, uh, yada, 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 a few years later, Fig uh, was born. Wow. So what inspired you then to create the concept of Fig, which stands for food is good. Food is good. And... I guess back, so you didn't you didn't have in your sights to be a restaurant tour, but I guess working in kitchens, you sort of it kind of grew on you. Like I can do this on my own, and I would want to be my own boss. I, I would say actually, um, I've always wanted to be my own uh, okay. restaurant tour, my own boss, my own restaurant tour, and it was just a matter of time. I felt before it happened, so I was always motivated to do that. The problem I was having was, so I felt like if I was to ha- define myself as a chef, again, this is 20-something years ago, that wouldn't buy imported food, that would only cook local foods, um, and I would do, did that at, a, at, you know, at the restaurant here, like I said, Anson, well, that restaurant wasn't set up for total immersion in that philosophy, so there were some recipes, and the owners felt like they had their own identity long before I got there uh, that they wanted to preserve, and I felt hamstrung by that. And I said, well, you know, and this is, I, I don't know how they operate now, but this is back then. So there was dishes on the menu that we had to keep year round. And some of that food would have to be imported because, um, you know, groupers and, you know, year round. And, and I felt like, wouldn't it be great to open a restaurant that had a chalkboard menu um, where we, we, you know, lived and died by the seasons. And, you know, and so I wanted to really push the envelope personally and professionally to see if we could pull off a concept like that. So when Fig opened, and to this very day, um, the first thing that we do when we walk in the door in the morning is grab the menu from the night before and start looking at what we have you know, in, in-house and what's coming in. And the menu gets tuned up every day based on what's available. So if um, something goes out of season or something is no longer available, it just comes off the menu, no questions asked. It took a long time to learn how to get good at that. Uh, because that's like, it's chaotic, really. Yeah, well, you've, 
I mean, 16 plus years in, and I dined at Fig last night. And I had never, I had been to the restaurant, but I had never had the full experience. And I, I went as a walk-in. I got a seat at the bar and uh, with my friend Jenny uh, from Heritage Radio. And uh, Nikki took amazing care of us. Oh, and great. we had a fabulous meal. And yes, she said from the get-go that the menu changes every day. And it's, it, I know it's based on what's seasonal, what's local, and um, it was, and even it was what, such a wonderful experience. What, thank you very much. And what, what people um, might not understand is, like, for example, say we had put a salad on the menu and it was um, young collared hearts, and we've run that for five or six days, and on day eight, the next cutting of those collards from the same farmer come into the kitchen, but they're a little bit more bitter, or a little bit, you know, or a little, t- a little tougher than they were the day before, and they're no longer suitable for that application. It's like those are the minor changes that really that we have to also negotiate on a daily basis. So it's not just whether or not the asparagus is available. It's like, is the quality of the product, um, can we replicate the dish from the night before with the same product from the same farmer as the season progresses, the vegetables change. So we have to you know, constantly... You know, those collared hearts turn into young collards, which we saute quickly, then turned into collards that are a little more mature and tough. And then we have to braise those at some point in time, you know. And, and so those are the little nuances that we, we have to tweak daily. And the same thing happens at The Ordinary. Uh, the Ordinary is more um, protein-centric with seafood. And that is a pretty robust program. Um, so the vegetables take a slight back, you know, um, not that we don't have the same philosophy with, with produce, but the seafood availability is plenty demanding. So that kind of takes most of our attention. Yeah, I was going to ask what inspired you to, to open The Ordinary, and which I always think of oysters. I mean, and I've been there, and I've had amazing oysters. I know you have a full menu, but was that, well, yeah, what was the inspiration for, for opening a second restaurant? So I don't know at what point in my life I decided that, you know, it became obvious to me that there's a shelf life for chefs and you would see people aging out all the time. And my business partner and I, you know, creatively, we, Adam Nemero, we wanted to do something in addition to FIG, but it had to be the right thing. And we wanted to buy a building and we wanted to make sure that we had an exit strategy or we were starting to have an exit strategy. And so the need to expand was the first, I think, um, part of that answer to that question. But secondly, FIG as I've already mentioned, it was started as more of a less of a produce-centric restaurant. And, but here in Charleston, if you've ever been in a shop and heard somebody ask, the one food question that everybody is guaranteed to hear or ask in this town is, where do we get the best seafood? And while at FIG, while we talked about produce a lot, because that story had yet to really be realized, you know, nationwide. I mean, people weren't talking about vegetables in the late 90s. Um... We were selling a, just a ton of seafood. And so if we sold 200 entrees in one night, uh, 175 of those would be fish. So because we we're always on the lookout for the best quality product and, and building relationships with uh, the local producers, we developed um, or curated a family of producers locally for shrimp and, and finfish and uh, crabs and oysters and clams that with people that were very like-minded and had the same kind of... Uh, standards of quality that we did. And so before I knew it, I looked around and said, we have an amazing expression of seafood here at Fig. Maybe we need to like tell that story a little bit more clearly. 
and uh, open a restaurant that really celebrates these people and the seafood of the Southeast. Because that I, I haven't heard that done yet. There's seafood restaurants in Charleston that are great and fine and fun, um, but nobody said, hey, wait, let's." things have changed, and the products that we're getting now are different, and the clientele is demanding better, and they're, they're, they're more savvy. And let's, let's create a restaurant that really celebrates um, our purveyors and our coastline. And it's funny because that, that, that idea came years before The Ordinary actually opened. Um, but I remember saying to myself, I was like, why? Everybody asks the question, where the best fish is. Um, but right now, everybody's cooking hogs. And they're doing charcuterie, even in Charleston. Nobody was talking about seafood. So it really was, I mean, the right place at the right time for us to do that. And it seems like almost simultaneously as we started talking about what we were going to do at The Ordinary, um, a light switch went off nationwide and people were talking about sustainable fisheries. And our concept seemed to fit in perfectly with that conversation. So we were very fortunate to get a lot of attention right from the get-go. Yeah, well, I love it. I'm definitely going to hit it again before I leave town. Let me ask you the question I have for my last guest, because it's a good one. I, I, um, episode 242, I talked with Katie Button, the executive chef and CEO of Katie Button Restaurants, which includes Curate Tapas Bar and Button and, ba- Button and Company Bagels in Asheville, North Carolina. We were at the Philly Chef Conference. We did this interview there. And she wants to know, how have you managed to give a platform, she said, for the chef de cuisine at FIG, um, I think I think she's probably referring to um, Jason Stanhope, yes. your executive chef, and so she wants to know um, how how did you manage to give him a platform and make that transition happen, giving him light. So I talked to Katie a little bit about this. Uh, she she said, "I've asked you. I think I threw a tough question at you." And <laughs> it's um, a good question. In fact, it's an amazing question because it speaks to the dynamic nature of our business. Um, so one of my favorite quotes of all time came from Alain Ducasse, and it says, there's no genius in the kitchen, only hard work. And at the time, that resonated with me because uh, for anybody that's listening that is in a creative position, you know, you look inward so often and you question yourself so often and you look for any, you know, r- uh, recognition or you look for the... for for validation that you're doing good work and that you're doing interesting work and that you have maybe some talent because you can't tell you, you can't tell if you have your own ta- if, you, if you have talent or not and when i heard that it's like i always thought there was a magic equation or a gift that maybe other great chefs had that i didn't um, and i and a long time ago uh, i decided well i can't control how smart or talented i am but i can definitely control how hard i work and I can control my attitude, and I can control um, my um, standards. So I decided from that point forward, nobody will outwork me, and I will never let a bad plate of food slide past me in the kitchen. And when I heard that, you know, it just, a lot of things fell into place. So anyway, as Fig turned 10 and The Ordinary opened, um, that was a big investment for my business partner and I, and if that restaurant did not um, succeed, it very well may have brought Fig down with it. So we bet the house on the ordinary working in a part of town that was kind of still up and coming. 
So while I dove into the ordinary, Adam and I kind of split duties, and I said, you know, we said, why don't you spend your time at Fig? Because Jason's been I've been training him up for quite some time, and I believe in him. Um, but I'm going to go to the ordinary, and I, I'm going to I'm going to be there every day. I'm going to make sure that things go well. So as I didn't totally cut the apron strings off immediately, but over the next couple of years, I started to say, okay, well, here's a guy that's that's living by our philosophy, right? There's no genius in the kitchen, only hard work. And as, as talented as a beautiful human being as he is, he was putting the hours in, and I wanted him to get the recognition. So year after year, the Beard Awards would come out, and the long list would be published, and there would be people in the same position as Jason um, that were getting recognized, but he wasn't. So I said, well, let's just make sure that everybody in the world knows that he's putting the work in over there. And however... Um, I wasn't so concerned about the optics overall, which is maybe even where Katie's question comes from. I was more concerned with uh, this guy's working his ass off for, for our company, and I want people to know about it. So we promoted him to executive chef in late 2014, and then immediately he won the um, Beard Award in 15 for Best Chef Southeast, which was a moment that I still might even tear up a little bit about. It was, it was a great, great day for us. It's amazing, and Fig is on the semifinalist list too for. So yeah, and you know, right? Fig is you yeah. know k- keeps churning away, and we're so grateful no, for the. Uh, I know. I for the attention and a couple um, of your accolades. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so now the dynamic is, you know, as we grow and get bigger and stronger, and like, how do we, you know, just how do we keep moving and make everybody happy? So that's like that's the hard part of the question is, what's next? You know, how do we keep it going? And, um, but I, I'm, I definitely think that we all have egos and it might be difficult to shed some light on some of your teammates, but I think ultimately it's incredibly important to, uh, to step aside and let the people that are doing the work get the recognition. Well, you've done an amazing job at that and with, with maintaining your restaurants and keeping their Thank status you. so high. So let's play my speed round game. This is, this is, I'm going to name a couple of things and you get to pick your preference. So, such as chocolate or vanilla. Um, will that be ice cream or milkshakes, though? Oh. Be cho- chocolate. All right, we're uh, short vanilla, on time. Cream, we're going to try to go speedy okay. here. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's, that's a first, though. Okay. 200 whatever plus episodes in, that's a first. Okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? All, all of them. All the plates. Communal table or chef's counter? A communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Um, as a patron, all-inclusive. As a restaurateur, very difficult waters to navigate. I hear you. Raw oysters or roasted oysters? Oh, can I say both of that? <laughs> if I had to pick one raw. All right. Sweet tea or unsweetened? Unsweet. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Charleston? Oh, Charleston. Charleston. That was easy. Wow, you, you got the speed. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so... Um, I want to ask you to ask us a question for my next guest as I tie the shows together. So uh, next week I'm going to be talking to Nate Mel. He's the founder and CEO of Felt and Fat, which is a collaborative ceramic design and manufacturing studio based in Philadelphia. So he makes beautiful tableware. 
what would you like to ask him? Well, I'm familiar with the company, but I'm not familiar with that kind of business as much as I am just in generally about business. Um, and the one thing that I think about constantly, uh, and we touched upon it just a touch here today, you know, in full form, how do you scale up a business like that and retain your identity? And then as you grow into yourself as a company, um, who do you look towards for um, inspiration or models? Because I think as you develop your own concept, you realize that at one point you blaze your own trail and it becomes increasingly difficult to make those decisions. And where do you look to find the answers to those questions? Awesome. I will ask. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're short on time, but one more question. What, what are you, what do you, what's up with you here at, at Charleston Wine Food Festival? What other events are you doing? What have you done? Well, we've got a full docket. We started off on Wednesday with a cocktail uh, event. Our Nikki had won uh, the cocktail competition, so she was featured here. Thursday, we had a great dinner at Fig with Ashley Christensen, Chidi Kumar, and Lisa Donovan, and Jason, of course. Um, last night, or yesterday, we had a lunch at The Ordinary, the Joe Kindred. Tonight, as we speak, we're setting up for a dinner party at my house. And then tomorrow, that's, I'm taking... That's the invite everyone wants. Dinner uh, at your uh, house, Well, huh? hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and then tomorrow morning, I'm taking a bunch of chefs golfing at 9 o'clock in the morning. And then we've got the Southern Renaissance event tomorrow night wow. to cap it off. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me. I'm so honored, and I'm such a fan, and I really greatly admire everything you've done and your restaurants, and I well, look you. forward to seeing what's next, because I know there's probably more next. Thanks for the invite. So, Thanks. Thank you, Bye. Mike. Thanks for, every, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thanks again to Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. I'm Sherry Bayer. This is All in the Industry. Stay tuned for more from Charleston Wine and Food. Thank you. This program is powered by Simplecast.